thrusters won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the range point four. This is control. Be reasonable. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Sits and Sivs, Captains and Commanders, you're tuned to the Guard Frequency, and as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the Guard. This is episode 115 of the Best Damn Space Sim Podcast Ever, and was recorded on Friday, April 8th, made available for download Tuesday, April 12th, over at GuardFrequency.com. I'm Tony. I'm Lennon. And I'm Jeff. So, what have we got this week, Jeff? Well, in this week's Squawk Box, we finally stick the landing. On the flight deck, we'll see what news has landed on your favorite Space Sims as we cover Star Citizen's latest patch... And for the Chairman, Episode 81, a little bit of Descent Underground and Infinity Battlescape, and news of the war over in New Eden, as we cover controversially a little bit of EVE Online. Don't worry, we won't be making a habit of it. Next, Lennon gathers mine and Tony's thoughts on large-scale PvP, and finally, we tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. And that takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on to the show and see what's coming through the school box. Do you boys need a carrier around here? Uh, everything's under control. Crypto, crypto, crypto. This is Tony saying welcome to the Squawk Box, everyone. Lennon, we're going to need that achievement sounder because SpaceX finally landed its Falcon 9 booster on the ocean barge. Woohoo! Just a few short hours before recording the show, SpaceX managed to avoid what CEO Elon Musk has previously designated a rapid, unscheduled disassembly event. Less than 10 minutes after launch, the first stage booster slowed from 3,600 miles an hour, that's 2.77777 hectares per second squared, all the way down to zero with nary a scratch or dent. 5.9, 5.9, ooh, a 5.7 from the East German judge. Paint a mustache on it next time, Elon. Uh, and let's not forget that the landing was merely a secondary objective. The Falcon boosted a Dragon cargo capsule into orbit. Its primary objective, which is also looking good right now, is to to deliver cargo experiments and a bouncy house to the International Space Station. Yes, that's right, a bouncy house. It must be somebody's birthday. Actually, it's the future of space habitation to you by Bigelow Aerospace. No, not the company that sells me my Earl Grey tea. The BEAM, or Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, is an inflatable habitation module that will be attached to the ISS and fully deployed over the next month. Then the crew will be able to customize it with some snazzy area rugs and fabulous window treatments. And also they'll monitor for micrometeoroid impacts and radiation levels. But if they had actual rugs and curtains, they could use them, because the bouncy house is a fully human flight-rated capsule and will plug into the ISS LEGO brick airlock system just to the left of the cupola where the crew takes all those awesome, awesome pictures. Everything should be perfectly safe, as this is actually the third inflatable module sent into space by Bigelow. The first two were uncrewed, expandable habitat modules in 2006 and 2007, called Genesis 1 and 2. Wait a second. Tons of photos, safety-tested bouncy houses, and dragon rockets? They're just missing the cake, but maybe they should hold the candles. I expect there's cake up there. It's probably just in those, like, shrink-wrapped packets that you've got to add water to or something like that. You're That's like not spaceman food. Uh, that's not cake. Ugh. I don't know. It's better than 90% of British cuisine anyway. 
<laughs> is that why there's no British astronauts? Because uh, uh, they're like, dude, they're only going up there for the food, man. I mean, uh, funnily enough, though, there is actually a British astronaut. He was the latest one to go up to the ISS. Uh, Tim Peake, his name is, and there was a big launch about it in the UK recently. Ah. Um, but I'm fairly certain he has only gone up there for the food. All right. Um, <laughs> this, this science stuff is just, you know, secondary. Anyway, uh, so back yeah, to the story, yeah. Back to yeah. the story, yeah. What so this, a technological uh, achievement. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's it's going to pack into a uh, crate, and it'll expand four to four times the volume, right? And do it more or less automatically. You know, just attach and flip a switch, and the thing expands out. Yeah, I mean, my only sort of concern about the whole inflatable housing bit is... Well, like they were saying, like micrometeor impact. I mean, I presume everybody here has seen gravity, right? That, that right. kind of that that put me off going to space that day. I will admit, um, <laughs> having you know the micrometeors and all that. But if they said that they've done testing on it and it's perfectly fine, then yeah, I'm I'm just wondering, is it? I expect it's all like sciency and very sterile and white. Whereas I kind of like hope that what we're actually seeing is like a giant yellow inflatable castle on the side of the ISS, kind of like you would get for a kid's birthday party. No, that would just really make it for me. It would be awesome, but but no, they're a little more serious about the science stuff. It is, as you say, a pretty generic white sort of bubble, according to the demo computer graphics uh, generation things that I've watched on their website. It's pretty boring, but, you know, it's just the beginning. I'm sure the version 2, it'll have, you know, a tower. Have you read, seen, or heard something you think might be interesting to others listening on the spectrum? Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the flight deck. 3175 Port Bay, hands on approach, checkers green, call the ball. Don't get technical with me. Our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for April 8th, 2016. 111,710,000, about 1.5 million from two weeks ago. 1.34 million registered accounts of about 20,000. And 953,000 ships in the UEE fleet of about 7,000. And speaking of Star Citizen, patch Alpha 2.3.1 has been released to live server. Not the biggest patch that CIG have put out, but it still contains a modest number of bug fixes. The known fact page, on the other hand, has a huge list of issues. Current items to watch out for. Bounty hunters and crusaders should not immediately hunt down the level 5 criminals, since if they were already there when the hunters arrive, no bounty will be awarded. If your ship loses its landing gear, you're stuck in it forever. I believe we predicted this, Mr. Mustang Pilot. The Constellation Andromeda lift occasionally functions as an emergency ejection chute. Freelancer co-pilots have been misbehaving and had their controls taken away as punishment. The Reliant Vanguard floors sometimes do not work. Arena Commander has decided balanced squadron battles are boring and now prefers 2 vs 8 or 1 vs 6 matchups. Visitors to the CIG site last week may have noticed that a post highlighting the benefits of the new food delivery career path in the Persistent Universe, including the promo video, an interactive Big Benny's menu, and the sale of Big Benny's Skinned Reliant. Upcoming game changes to accommodate the career include a new STU or Standard Tasty Unit for measuring cargo space, replacement of the Drake Herald's hardened computer core with pizza oven, and the revelation that the Vandal Blade, Scythe, and Glaive are just three parts of an extraordinary nine-piece Vandal cutlery set. This was, of course, CIG's April Fool's prank. There are no plans for a specific food delivery career in Star Citizen, and click on the link to buy the Big Benny's Reliant links to a 30-second video of the community's team dancing, which was culminated with some sort of off-screen wipeout by Lando. 
That revelation has, of course, created actual demands for Big Benny's Reliant skin. There was also another 10 for the chairman this week with a few more notes about game mechanics. Firstly, in ships with variable flight modes, the ability to switch modes in flight is largely going to depend on the ship. The Cartwell, for example, only really folds up if it's landing, whereas the Reliant is being designed with a vertical and horizontal flight mode in mind. Either way, full control of these modes is a future development item. On the weapons front, not so accurate, asked Chris about what amounts to a ship-mounted shotgun-type weapon. It would fire solid projectiles that spread out with potentially heavy damage up close with a wide but low damage spread further out. Chris said nothing in the pipeline right now really matched that description, but he admitted that it sounded like a neat idea. Heroic Frog wanted to know if there was any particular advantage to matching components manufacturers to the ships or to each other. And Chris said that there isn't any kind of item set-like bonuses in the game right now, but on a limited basis it might be something that they could explore. Finally, Witcher wanted to know if CIG had figured out how the huge ships are actually going to be flown, and Chris explained that initially the helmsman just kind of turns the ship the same way as any other ship in the verse currently, though obviously the handling will be a lot less responsive. In the future, however, they're looking at a system where, if an advanced IFCS is installed on the ship, it becomes more like pre-programmed behaviour, so the helmsman preloads end goals into the helm system, e.g. move the ship so we're going to go 100 degrees forward of our current position and then roll 20 degrees, and then the IFCS manoeuvres the ship as best it can to achieve the end goal. We talked a little bit about their prank last week, just for a second, but uh, yeah, this was a, a very a, a nicely executed and rather uh, elaborate prank. Uh, well, you know, well done, well played, and I, I just I just wonder where the inspiration for Big Benny came from. Yeah, I'm I'm actually quite disappointed that there isn't a nine-piece Vandal cutlery set. I would seriously go for one of those. They have to, you know, they'd have to throw in a, a free salad chopper or something, you know, before they got me to call the one eight hundred number. And plus, they'd have to put together a, a convincing infomercial. I, I would I want to see that. I would want to see that half-hour-long infomercial. We should tell them Carrie Kerrigan is available. Okay, so what are your guys' thoughts about a shotgun for space? Something where um, it has a bit of a spread, and if you use it close up, it's high damage, but use it further away, and obviously the spread means that it lessens the damage. Don't think it's practical, actually. They have a weapon like it in, over in uh, Elite Dangerous, the frag cannon. It's a fine, it's okay, it's not great. It's it's good for finishing off little ships once their shields are down, as long as you get within close range, but it's not a great weapon. And I have I have a problem with it in game that we've been sold, because essentially what it would be is they'd have to render a hundred, a thousand, however many little pellets ballistically right, yes. in space. It seems like it, it, it would be a processor, clock cycle intensive weapon to put in the game, and a little impractical too. Given the fact that you know we're in the 31st century, you're supposedly zipping around in these you know agile fighters. I don't know that uh, those would be real effective, except as a point defense type system for missiles or whatever on capital ships. And even then, they're as much of a danger to your escorting fighters as they are to any sort of incoming ordnance. So, not convinced it's a great idea. I don't see it as a practical measure. The only thing I see as a practical measure with with something like that is if it's a shield breaker. It it would have to be some kind of energy shotgun. I mean, just as a practical matter, just to keep it straight in the engine. It couldn't be persistent. It would have to be limited range. It would have to be something like that. You know, that's the whole gameplay versus reality thing. If if it's going to work like reality, 
you got to make sacrifices so it works in the game. It's the same what we were just talking about in Squawk Box, too. It's like, you know, letting loose a bunch of micrometeoroids. So theoretically, if we can design a space bouncy house in the 21st century that can handle orbital speed impacts, you'd have to be right up in somebody's face with a shotgun to be of any use whatsoever. And you would think that a spacecraft of the 31st century should absorb several dozen of those micrometeoroids without any trouble. Not a fan of that uh, particular weapon. But I, I also want to point out that the ship maneuvering stuff, we've discussed this in the past, and it's it's basically going to be, you know, a really fat, big, unresponsive constellation. And that looks like the design choice here. It's just going to be a piloting thing, not a navigating thing. Are we pleased, surprised, displeased? How do we think about that? I'm a bit... Um, I don't really know what the words are. Like, ultimately, I'm not surprised that they decided to go this route. I was just hoping that they would make it a little more um, I don't know, I guess a little more on the realistic side, less on the tall ships in space side, and the reason that I say that is because I know that we've gone for the whole World War II dogfights in space feel for the fighters, but this kind of now feels like we're going for uh, battleships in space, you know, like big hulking, maneuvering bits of metal that can't yeah. really just change direction on the fly and things like that. Right. Not that I would also expect it to be super mobile and super turny, but just something a little bit more than what they're describing, really. The problem I have with keeping this control scheme uh, the same from the fighters all the way to the capital ships is that with fighters, you with practice anyway, you can get an idea for how much pull on the stick or throw on the throttle you need to have a reaction you know, to get the ship to do certain things. I think the learning curve is a lot tougher on something that does not respond. You don't get as many turns per game on a battleship size type thing as you would in a Hornet or other type of ship, you know. If I want to practice and get a feel for how my ship handles in maneuvering, I'm going to have to sit at that helm for a long time and practice a lot of turns before I get an idea of how long it's going to take me to get, you know, bow on or to rotate so that uh, I can protect my top shield or whatever it is I want to do. You know, if you have to devote keystrokes and input to maneuvering, can you then also trigger a weapon? Can you also uh, do some defensive stuff? Can you rewrap yeah. power? I oh, mean, yeah. for one part of it, the problem I see is that it doesn't differentiate capital ship fighting from the fighters. That's kind of where I'm like, eh. The whole idea of these capital ships was that it's supposed to be able to be subdivided. Like, you want to give the helmsman enough to do and enough fun and enough different things to worry about to make just flying the ship a mini-game in itself. And if it's just going to be keyboard and mouse controls, that might get a little repetitive. The problem I have with multi-crewed is the fact that your multi-crew may not always be there. But well, you yeah, need that's to be fine. able to take that. But, you, may, yeah. you need to be able to consolidate those controls so when you're single-playing... And be able to release those controls when you're multiplaying. But that's the problem. These big ships in Star Citizen are supposed to be just multiplayer. I mean, you're supposed to have to need a crew to run one effectively. I see. Maybe I don't agree NPCs. with that at all. I don't uh, agree with that at all. That's the design philosophy behind these things. They were sold to people as get your buddies together and go together in the universe. Now, if you don't have any buddies online, you can have NPCs that will take over some of those things. But there needs to be a way to give directions to the NPCs without having to micromanage them. And if they're going to have the control system be just keyboard and joystick, there's no way to delegate the flying of the that's ship right. to an NPC. Right. That's so the, we that's need the we need problem. more we need better controls. Yeah, they have to they, that whole that whole advanced IFCS thing. That's not going to work. Their design goal is really to break out the different tasks and be able to crew the ship with NPCs. That's not going to work, because I can't tell an NPC 
pull on the joystick 30 degrees this way and 60 degrees that way, hold for eight seconds, throttle to 30%, and then as the uh, you know as the as the turn hits its stride, go to full throttle. I mean, there's no good way to script that in some buttons and stuff. And, so. and, you know, I yeah, I don't know if they can or not. I I get where they're trying to do. They're trying to bring back a water navy into space. Oh, and so you have your midshipmen, your your war officers, yeah. your navigators, but they better be well scripted because one of my yeah. orders is not adhered to. I'm going to be putting a bullet in his head. Well, and in real life, quote, quote, real life, having a, a trained enlisted fellow on your spaceship whose job it is to pull and hold on a joystick for X amount of time, that's fine. I mean, that guy is going to be trained to do that and that's going to be his job and he, you know that's his thing. But in the game world, if we break out these jobs and I'm the helmsman of my ship, if my job is to yank and hold on a stick for 30 or 90 seconds at a time as this gigantic capital ship starts turning around, that's like the worst job in the crew. Well, I, mean, I hope it's not like joystick in this because if I say... That's what they're saying. That's what he's saying. Set, if I say helmsman set course for 30 mark 007... Uh, that's not a thing. That's better. Chris is saying that's not a thing. That's not a thing here. Oh. It's for the future. And we all know what that means. Yeah. So I mean, it, you well, give us capital ships then. The, the, until the system is right, there. don't don't break it out because it's not going to make gameplay any better. And all we're going to do is bitch about it. So don't <laughs> kind of like it. we're doing now. Ah, <laughs> right. So don't. Not, so unless the system that is in place to do these things, don't release anything. I'm kind of with you. Yeah, I am too. Let us have fun with the dogfighters and the smaller big ships like the Connie. But the real big ships, yeah, leave them out. Well, this week, Descent Underground saw some updates at their Proving Grounds, the name for Descent's testing server. Namely, the Fusion Cannon charge up for greater damage, and it can penetrate ships and hit targets behind them. Too much charging will damage the user, and trust us, you don't want to get caught in this thing's line of fire. Super fun Skylab map performance tweaks. VR testing has proved too much for Skylab, and it's going to have to have itself a little optimization pass. There's an in-game frames per second counter that's been added, and match browser fixes. The time remaining should now display correctly, and the channel defaults to general. Also, Infinity Battlescape saw some progress as Flavian fixed a couple of major bugs in the client surrounding cockpit and particle systems flickering, which have now been caught and smashed. Uh, in addition, he's also fixed the issues where damaged lights continue to blink even when the ship has no power, and a few HUD icons get their colors tweaked. Yeah, Infinity Battlescape is shaping up to be quite a good little uh, space sim. I'm actually quite impressed with what they've been able to do with it so far. Um, and it's definitely one that you should keep an eye on. Um, further, if there's anybody out there who is actually involved in the developer beta and is actually, you know, listening to us very poorly, trying to describe why Infinity Battlescape is so good, um, <laughs> get in touch with us because we'd really love to hear more about it from an insider point of view. Because, like I said, right now we've only got to rely on all the information that gets released to the public. And it would be good, actually, even if it's just a one-off for somebody to just give us a good chunk of meat about what's going on on the inside. Well, now it's time for news we didn't use. The art sneak in Star Citizens Around the Verse this week features a player avatar walking on a procedurally generated planet. Our Citizens Monthly Report for March was released just minutes ago. We'll pull out the highlights uh, next week's show. And in Elite Dangerous, the player-run Distant Worlds expedition reached Beagle Point this week, completing their voyage to the farthest point in the galaxy. Frontier revealed that participants will receive a decal commemorating the event when 2.1 goes live. 
that was super cool. Yes. I thought that was really, really awesome. There was a, uh, a few weeks ago, there was a, 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 a video clip or whatever of, I think it was 40 or 50 ships in this convoy, hyperspacing out all at the same time on the way to the farthest point in the galaxy. It was the, basically the direct opposite of the Milky Way from where the bubble, the human-inhabited bubble in the, in the Elite Dangerous Galaxy was. Just really a, a, a fascinating expedition, seeing what the engine could do, seeing what the computer simulation could do, and seeing what the ships that the game company put together could do inside the universe. And having that they made it all the way out there is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and it didn't actually take too long, all things no. considered. Yeah, like a you month know. or two. Yeah. And admittedly, that was basically, you know, load up, plot, jump, plot, jump, refuel, jump, plot, jump. But yeah. talk about still. a lot of monotony being the helmsman, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> but overall, I mean, that that is a really, really cool achievement. And yeah, like, grats to everybody in the Distant Worlds expedition. And that, it's that's some really cool kind of emergent gameplay, I think, about the, the system. It speaks well to the game design and speaks well to the the folks that are on the trip, on the journey. And though its status as a space sim has been debated ad nauseum, we're going to talk a little bit about the goings-on in the EVE universe as a bit of a lead into this week's debate. So most people know of EVE Online because of its status as the first, you know, truly successful space MMO slash spreadsheet simulator. In the recent past, the game has made waves for a massive conflict known as the Fountain War, which was a three-month-long conflict in 2013 involving levels of alliances and betrayals that we haven't really seen since World War I, culminating in a 4,000-person in-game battle that just left one faction a near superpower in game terms, with its number of players officially cresting over 40,000. Now, Eve's started to creep back into the gaming news cycles recently because of something termed the Easter War. There's still enough diplomacy and backstabbing involved in the start of the hostility to make the Medici's proud, but the main complaint most people point to is that a high-ranking member of the Fountain Wars winning group had the hubris to announce at an Eve convention nonetheless in December that he'd like to launch a Kickstarter to fund writing and publication of a book detailing the goings-on of the Fountain War. Now, members of the losing factions, who, unlike in real wars, are, you know, still around and mostly alive, strongly objected to the book and said it would basically be propaganda. The Kickstarter was cancelled, but the mere idea was enough to convince a few disparate groups to join up with each other and stick it to the man, while a few key members of the ruling party's alliance decided that they didn't want to play nice anymore, and they also defected. This obviously sets the stage for a massive war. The conflict is still raging, if gaming news sites are to be believed, but, you know, why does this matter? Well, first, it can't be said that the wars didn't generate interest in the game, and it's known that some new and departed players have got back into EVE simply because there was a war going on. Despite that, people who looked at the last war indicated that the main reason the losers lost is because of the PvP participation rates, and this makes sense. EVE's combat model is based on traditional point-and-click MMO interfaces, where the side with the more people being able to point and click and heal allies and launch attacks is probably going to win just based on sheer numbers because they have math on their side. 
Modern space MMOs are moving away from that model again, so, you know, why do we care? Well, even though nobody died, that we're aware of at least, this was not a victimless war, as EVE has a real money to in-game money conversion rate. We're going to go with the BBC's estimate, because I'm horribly biased, and say that the eventual cost of the war was a little over $300,000 worth of in-game assets, and that works out to about 483 million radishes in the metric system. Also, the man that has the most friends wins the war argument can't be totally dismissed even in a skill-based combat system. After all, an ace pilot might be able to face off against five opponents and win, but what about ten or fifty? And your best gunner in a dorsal turret does you no good if the attacks are coming in for every angle. Just take a look at what happened in Elite Dangerous recently. In February, perhaps a dozen members of a player group called the Smiling Dog Crew, or SDC, raided the private PvE group Mobius. Having applied to the group individually over periods of time, they were indistinguishable from any other Mobius players. Once accepted into the private group, they were able to wing up and attack players in several areas, including around the community goals going on at the time. Now, Mobius being a PvE-only group has internal rules of conduct that forbid PvP actions except in designated conflict zones, and even then, only when aligned with opposing factions. Now, as a result, most of the players targeted by the SDC were neither equipped nor prepared for fighting other players, leading to an extremely one-sided result. In some cases, SDC members recorded their kills and posted them to YouTube, Reddit, and everywhere else on the intertubes. However, Mobius was not their only target. SDC also participated in what's called stream sniping, in where players identify the location of others who are live streaming and then kill them in front of all their viewers. Most notably, SDC disrupted three different streams that were attempting to raise money for charity, again, uploading and mocking their victims. Frontier Developments, uh, the publisher for Elite Dangerous, responded to complaints and said that there was just not a lot they could do about those actions as they were done within the bounds of what the game permits. No exploiting was done. However, the head of the community, Zan Antonacci, did post a reiteration that the player harassment rules applied and issued a warning that using alt accounts to circumvent bans from a private group, like Mobius, or repeatedly targeting charity streamers and then posting videos about it could be considered harassment. Well, the SDC's response? They set up a supposed charity stream of their own called Arseholes for Arseholes, and they murdered individual sidewinders in newbie systems for the cause of a member's friend who had prostate cancer. While a post about this event was allowed on the Elite forums, many considered it an elaborate troll. SDC claims that they did all of this just for the reaction and for a laugh, or to send a message about issues with the game. Liam Rafferty, the founder of Mobius, considers the behaving griefing. Plain and simple, Mobius members leave open play for a private group and remove themselves from the PvP equation, yet players like STC just can't be content with the willing prey. And so that leads us to our debate question this week. Are large-scale PvP conflicts something to encourage in modern games, or do they simply cause trouble and angst far beyond any in-game or meta benefit that they may have? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to debate for us large-scale PvP. I will give you each 30 seconds to present your case, and then a further 30 seconds to respond. As a result of a coin flip, Tony is up first, and Jeff is up second. So, Tony, please, tell us, why is there nothing quite like a good war? Lennon, there's nothing quite like a good war, because that is what makes your game unscripted and unpredictable. People can and do cheat systems, game systems, haha, game systems, and basically can make the thing do more than you ever intended it to do. This is the exact opposite of the grind. It's something that breaks up the repetitive 
designed monotony that is the hallmark of every major MMO or online game. Hey, Jeff. Tony, you really ignorant slut. You have no idea what PvP brings out in a person. I am not totally against PvP, but I think it should be limited and limited very harshly. For examples, with the exact Mobius and the asshats that drove around. Yes, and you can I, you can write me, you asshats. Uh, I don't care. You asshats deep in the core, because it just makes assholes of everyone, and you can't get around it. I mean, they sit behind these computers, thinking they're anonymous. They wouldn't do this to their neighbor. They wouldn't go out there and uh, slam a baseball bat upside their head. No, they have to be on a computer and ruin somebody else's day to do so. And this is how they get their jollies. All right, your response? Jeff, I'm not going to disagree with you that this can bring out the worst in people, but what I have to say is that it can also bring out the best. Because when you do have bad actors in a game where you would hope that there would be cooperative gameplay, it brings out the opportunity for cooperative gameplay. It really can bring a community together like we're seeing a little bit here where there are anti-griefer bands that come together to try to counteract those guys. So I, I think you, you got to take the good with the bad in that. Okay, Jeff, 30 seconds this time, go. Tony, you ignorant slut. There is no good with the bad. They're all bad. Uh, they're bad, 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 bad. <laughs> I'm not going to go. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just that... Um, you, you, they, they'll never learn. They'll, they'll jump to the next game, or they'll, there's no, there's no real repercussions. And, and because of that, there's nothing that can be really done about them, and, the, and we have to deal with them as is. Oh, to the nose there, Jeffrey. Well done. Well done. Well, so I, I think what we have, if I could summarize Jeff's position, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think bad ass hat. Yes. Think, um, I think, Jeff, is that an accurate summation yeah, of how you feel yeah, about that? Because I can't really, okay, right, I, right, okay. for, because of the censor laws with podcasts, I can't really say what I really think. Censor laws. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to make it, I'm just going to make a note of this. So this is 12.36 in the second part. Uh, Jeff, you have approximately 10 seconds of uncensored time, which will get cut. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Jeff's point is about, especially about the charity. The charity thing was a bit far. I thought, you know. Yeah, I, I, this is it's the charity thing that, that went past the line. I gotta agree with you hundred percent there, because their bit is that it's just a game, right? We're reminding all these people that it's just a game. The rules of the game say I can come kill you, and that's just the way the game is built. On purpose, it was designed to be this way. Now that's fine, but when people use the game to try to do things in real life to help people, and then you come choose that moment to remind people that it's just a game, you're a dick and a jerk. And an because asshat. you're not at that point <laughs> and an ass. But I digress once again. But I think that that's the line, is that, yes, it is just a game. Yes, the rules of the game permit you to do this. Yes, people sometimes do need to be reminded that, you know, this is your, supposed to be your leisure time and doing things in, with your leisure time that include a space battle simulator mean that sometimes you will get blowed up real good fine but when you're using it to to try to make a positive difference in the world and you specifically insert yourself into that situation to stop people from making a positive difference in the world you've crossed a line you are now in the clear clear 
griefer zone. And you need to be punished. And there's a harassment policy and Frontier needs to enforce it. I agree. I, you know, it's just, it, it, what really worries me is the mentality of people getting to this point where they feel like they can break a private group and because it's in the game, well, it's really, it's really not in the game. If you were to debate this in, in, in any consideration whatsoever, you would know that a private group is a private group and you're invited to follow the rules of the private group. Despite of what the game mechanics are, there's a private group and they have certain rules. So, right. if your mentality is to think that that you can go and remind people that it, that this is the game, you're totally wrong. You're right. just wrong. Believe it or not, believe it or not, I'm going to take the griefer's side on this one, on this part. Now, and full disclosure, I fly in Mobius all the time. I don't go to open anymore. I'm through with open. I, I fly Mobius virtually exclusively, but. Mobius is not exactly what Frontier had in mind when they designed the private groups. I mean, what they had in mind was people teaming up with small social groups or whatever, probably. You know, maybe a few hundred guild-type size things that would go off and do their own thing. You know, like like the people that were flying out to the edge of the galaxy. I think that's the sort of thing that they had in mind when they when they set that up. I think Mobius sort of breaks their mold. I, I disagree. I, I think that I think that the private groups was in, uh, was to impartial that, but I also believe from what I read of the uh, the dev blogs and stuff was also to assist in in making a safe place for people to gather. Otherwise, they would have restricted the game the private groups to. Uh, 64 players or to you know whatever okay that's a good point you're right I mean but I do th- I do think that Mobius with its several thousand members is a bit outside there on paper what they designed it to be but just like the griefers say the rules of the game permit it hey Frontier never said that you can only have a, you know X number of players in a, in a private server in a private instance so both sides are, are right on that one but I think that what, what it, it is is it's a reminder to people that run these private instances that it would behoove them to have a better punishment structure in place. Don't rely on on Frontier to do the policing for you. You know, you, you probably need to vet your uh, applicants a little more uh, carefully. And, and maybe that means Frontier needs to give a little more granular control over the servers to the people that set them up. You know, maybe for only a month you can you can only fly in, or you know you you're wanted everywhere except for certain sectors or something you know set people give people uh, you know probation you know set have the ability to set somebody to wanted if they do foul up somehow but you know i, I don't see frontier changing their game over this issue i don't want frontier to to change their game over this issue i want them to enforce the harassment rules or determine that yes. it was harassment Definitely. and ban them well damn but that alts They'll just they just spend another sixty bucks another alt account. Well, fine. Back. Uh, and if they do it again, they'll continue to get banned and they'll continue to spend money over uh, over the the course of whatever. You know, if they can afford to do that, that's good for Frontier. Yeah. All right. I, I don't want them to change the game because of it. I want them to enforce uh, you know rules about it. Well, and I think it's a good contrast with Eve. You know, this was something that if you don't want to participate in the war. You just don't ship stuff there. You don't fly to that system. You don't ally with those particular groups or whatever, and you don't participate in the war. I mean, this is, it's more or less a consensual deal. Right, and, and that's a, kind of why I don't play EVE anymore, because it's more lawless than any other game that's out there. I mean, 
it doesn't matter if you're if they if they chase you across six sectors and and blow you up every single time you and cost you you know thousands of dollars worth of money it's a lawless uh game so uh you know there's no repercussions whatsoever well but i think the concept of it like you know a player organized war is is a little i mean it's not it's different yeah it's a different it's it's a different different scenario too i mean this was an organized ongoing thing that that was expected and and everybody knew what's going on and and the outcome was to be expected you just hope that you weren't the losing end of it where you would cost you lots and lots of money but you know it was a little more telegraphed People didn't have the expectation of flying in a safe sector or flying in a safe zone and then be surprised about it. You know, the expectation is if you're in one of these, you know, in-game groups or flying in that system where the attack was, was happening, you were putting yourself in danger on purpose. And, you know, you got to be okay with that. The quote, griefing or, or the, for the lulls, that wasn't the issue. This is a, you know, an organized in-game event. Well, clearly this is a hot-button issue for us here at Guard Frequency, but we want to really know what you guys think. So this week's community question, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing? Or does it in fact have a place in the universe? Let us know your thoughts by sending an email to skork at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com. Now that we're all up with the latest news, let's tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendlies! So let's just... Some say he can make his image appear in people's toast, and that his only natural predator is the rubber duck. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he'll put together this week's feedback. Player-run economies, does it help with the immersion to have control over the monies as well as your ship, or should we stick to playing the vision designed for us? Or, which is better, pirates or ninjas? And more importantly, why? Or, which prelude or nugget sketch was your favorite? Did we miss yours off our list? Well, Adon kicks things off by saying, My preference for player-run economy changes based on the game. In games that have either or both a robust crafting system and where not much power comes from your equipment, such as Ultima Online or Darkfall, then I'm okay with player-run economies. Short of those, I would like the developer to, at minimum, keep a watchful eye. Oh, a quick note on the Xbox generation age. I was 10 when the first PlayStation came out 20 years ago. I was 16 when the Xbox came out 14 years ago. The people who grew up on consoles are not turning 20 and just getting into their jobs. We're 30 and well-established in our careers. I love the show and the intro was fantastic. Keep up the good work. Sean Newboy says, Wonderful show, everyone. Great job. I think player-run economies should be interfered with to deal with trolls. I think that would be a good system for persistent games. P.S. As Emperor, I was checking with my vassals in the far-flung reaches of my empire. I had to keep them in line. That's why I was gone for two weeks. Oh, that explains it. Uh, And he says, also, ninjas. (laughs) Sal says, player-run economies? Can players really run anything? That's a good point. We need structure. Otherwise, it becomes chaos. Mass pandemonium. 1984. Cats and dogs living together. Eve. Note players can't and shouldn't determine the economic mechanics of a game, but only influence it. Unless it's the Federal Reserve Simulator. Good luck developing that. About episode 114. It was fun trip down memory lane. I never laughed harder than when I heard Sean, the customs guy, for the first time. Good stuff. Tarka says, great show guys, here's my take on player-run economies. Players cannot resist taking the path of least resistance, sometimes even resorting to exploiting games in unintended ways just to obtain their goals, which is why I think in-game economies should never be completely player-run. However, I also feel they shouldn't be controlled down to a micro-level by devs either because too much control can result in stagnant economies. 
This is why I think in-game economies really only work when devs create an infrastructure that is flexible enough to allow for emergent economic gameplay whilst ensuring they can still maintain control over it when needed. Good feedback. I think that yeah. uh, one, one point that I really liked a lot was the whole idea about uh, the crafting system being sort of a guidepost as to how much player influence we're going to let people have. And I kind of like that. I have some problems with crafting. I have two minds. The crafting systems I've I've seen in a lot of games lets you craft mostly items that are greater than can be purchased on the general market, you know, that the devs provide, you know, in the in the regular economy. And I've seen others where the crafting systems have produced goods that are always of lower quality. So what's the point in crafting? I have a solution to the conundrum. Mini jump points? <laughs> No, but I am going to one of my other standbys. Here comes, here comes. This is your time-based currency. You tie a crafting system to something that is not terribly useful to players as a whole, but you have automatic vendors who will always buy them from you in any quantity. And those those crafts are set on timers, so you'll always have access, or you'll only have access to however much you can craft in a certain time period. So that's that becomes your time-based currency. Those items that you craft become... Uh, your time gate. Are you saying that we should lose the item then that you craft or that the crafted item is 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 just temporary and then just disappears after a while and so you have to craft a bunch of them? You could do yeah, either way actually. I mean you can make it a token and just a token. I craft this thing and then, it be, then I give it to this NPC vendor and then either the NPC vendor can then you know in a complex environment like Star Citizen is proposing that NPC vendor can then make that into an input for the larger you know manufacturing system or it can just be a sink it can just you know disappear either way i mean it just depends on the rest of your game design but then all of a sudden those crafting players have money to spend in the game and then at that point they can go buy other commodities and goods or you know the high end gear or ships or whatever and cycle that through the economy I think that's the key to well-run in-game systems is having a balance between the sort of throwaway cash loot that you get for blown up bad guy ships and a decently managed time currency. Again, I'm going to point to Star Trek Online. That one seems to have got that more or less figured out. Yeah, I, I got to admit that, that uh, STO does have a decent crafting and economy going on. Way better than it used yeah, to be. Uh, yes, that's true. The crafting system is way better than it used to be. And I and I have and I, I I go in and out of that game. I mean, it's still a decent game. I still fire it up every so often. And the last time I went, I was able to you know make okay money. You know, throwaway currency. You know, the, the energy credits. I was able to do okay just through the crafting system. You know, do a few clicks here and there, set the timers running, and go. And then you know I log back in the next day, and I've got a pile of money that I can go do stuff with. So I mean, it's not impossible to do you know that sort of time sink strategy. With, with the crafting system. We've all seen the kind of resources that go get involved with crafting. And a lot of games have these ultra rare materials. And it's like, it's, it's in some place that, you know, you have to be level, you know, X, 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 I mean, super duper level that will get you a certain type of material and and it just blows it for everybody it's like uh, why bother i mean i think if there are common materials and extra good quality materials and then 
maybe the rare materials that are not, you know, hard to get, but they are still either expensive or you have to go someplace, you know, out of the way to get them. I think that's okay. But when you make these materials and stuff so out of reach for most players, I mean, for a good portion of the populace, then you really got something wonky there with your crafting system. Yeah, but I think that what you're saying there is exactly a good point for why a crafting system can be effectively used to tweak an economy. Because let's say you have to get this rare flower to make the super awesome medicine or whatever. Well, if you want to give the economy a boost or a shot, the flower suddenly now grows on this new planet that is much more accessible than it used to be. And all of a sudden, boom, a lot of people are suddenly super rich because they've got this, they can have access to this flower now. And then all of a sudden, and then you have a plague and it dies. Oh, darn it. It was just a temporary thing and the, the flower is now wiped out on that planet. So I, I think that's why a crafting system can be used as good fictional lever to control the economy as well as a good, you know, database mechanic sort of lever for the economy that makes it feel like you're still in the game. Oh, and by the way, Sayo, Federal Reserve Simulator, I was a college tutor in economics, and I totally had this whole scheme down, and I had a big story about how Big Al at the Fed had a big interest rate lever, and I really had it, like, all worked out. I mean, I've, I, I've already built the Federal Reserve Simulator in my mind. And in general feedback, Turkish Zygjimin says, Stu's mom star barges, WTF, ROF, L-A-M-O. And Cyril says, You missed the obvious on the physical merchandise. It would be irrational to ship any package tied to merchandise before the packages have been locked in. No gifting and melting at all for physical packages would be a requirement for delivering the physical goods. I don't think they're ready to do that just yet. Uh, Apparently the Shiv has already sent forms T-O-N and Y to management to implement a retraction. (laughs) <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Just mark off that the poster has been shipped. And if I gift or melt that thing, knock off whatever it is that needs to be knocked off, or when the transfer happens, that is no longer a thing that needs to be fulfilled. Just mark it off. Oh, I think what they're saying here is that, not necessarily, but if you had three packages and you're intending to gift one, and they ship you all the posters, you can now no longer gift that one with the poster. Why not? Just mark it off that it's already been fulfilled, and then if I transfer that gift to that uh, that package to somebody else, it's just that the poster doesn't come with it. And if they want to yell at me, they didn't get a poster. But if you, I was going to say, but if you wanted to to gift it with all the extras, you know, if you had like a work colleague or something, maybe if it was a work colleague, you could just physically hand them the goods. But if you were sending it to somebody across the country or whatever, you know, or a different country, it, well, if, it's yeah. simple. If, if it's marked as a gift or a gift package, then you don't fulfill the order. Right. Which is which is the thing is that that has hasn't been done yet like there isn't a way to say of all the packages on your account i'm intending on gifting this one well i go into my account and i can see one that's mine and one that says gift yes but that's somebody who's given a gift to you if you had always given me any gifts or one you like hang on hang on hang on or one you've gifted then if it's if it's two packages that are on your account that you have yet to gift how do they know which one you're actually intending on keeping if any of them because one one is used and one is a is marked gift but the one that's marked gift would be the one that's already given away. What Cyril is saying is that my complaint was that the people who chipped in early are not getting their posters. Okay. What he's saying is that would be a partial fulfillment of a package deal that you bought. And unless and until they have some way to micromanage those partial fulfillments by shipping stuff as it becomes available, they're, you're, you're basically either having to cut off the ability to gift or people are going to get a lot of extra posters or no posters at all. My reply is, 
then either A, make up a different trinket to give away, and there's no shortage of trinket ideas coming out of CIG, or B, let me decide if I want a poster. Like, on the, on the, on the poster, on the, on the uh, CIG ordering thing, let me order a poster, and rather than clicking pay $15 or whatever, say, redeem my package. There we go. My, That's how you do package. it. Right there. But my, my point is that this was not thought out well. From a customer service angle, this was the point we were trying to make last week. CIG, not Cyril, yeah. This was, yeah, not, not Cyril. CIG did not think this out well because this is this is yet another sort of like, eh, the people that have been with us for a long time, they ain't going nowhere. So we don't have to, we don't, we're not required to think this hard about the situation or to make the back-end modifications that we would need to make in order to make this work. The cost-benefit analysis of it in the cold, hard light of reality is not worth it. And they're right. I mean, it's not worth it. But that's the sort of thing that costs you down the line as far as goodwill, customer service goodwill. That was our point. Odin Omen says, Hello, Guardians of the Frequency. I wanted to say how much I enjoyed this show. I listen every week and like how you're covering different space sims. The skits you do are hilarious. Well... That's it for now. Smiley face. Short, sweet, <laughs> and to the point. That's, we like that. Yep. And we also like making sketches. We'll do more. So, there are no new Patreon subscribers this week. Remember, if you can't beat them, join them by becoming a Patreon today. And the winners of a brand new patch are Mandel Sabenga. And a quick reminder of this week's community question. War. What is it good for? absolutely nothing or does it in fact have a place in a in-game universe let us know your thoughts send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com so how was the show do we successfully negotiate a peace deal or we just need to hope that space duke ferdinand doesn't stop off for a sandwich on the way home either way let us know here are some ways you can get in touch with us. Why not leave a comment on this show's post over at GuardFrequency.com? Or you can hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak. Or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. If you're old school like us, just shoot an email to squawk at GuardFrequency.com. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute. Tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 115 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 116 on April 19th, so be sure to keep an eye out for our shows on our website, GuardFrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything Friday nights, then you can always come and join us live over at guardfrequency.com forward slash live. We start recording around 11pm Central. That's Saturdays at 5am GMT. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. And right now our audio team is expanding, so if you think you know a high-quality show when you hear it, we'd love to hear from you. You can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just the low $1.25, you can get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, as well as being entered into our weekly draw to win some Guard Frequency goodies. We want to thank all of our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week and hope that you'll consider making a regular contribution because the more support we get, the better show we can make. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you come join us. Just check out our website and look under the call sign section for details of how you can fly with us. 
And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek, from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to check them out at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lowmaster, our artists, Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards, our staff writers, Jeff Grant, Jace Pentad, and Ken Shadow, and of course, our audio engineer, Michael Duncan. A big shout out to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit RonaldJenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Shiv, you're going to need to write a Carrie Kerrigan infomercial for the Van Duel Cutlery set. Oh, that please is, do. That is, yes, that is now an assignment. And Jeff, why do you sound like that? I like what? Oh. You sound, you sound like you, you have a helium filter on or something? Have you taken helium? No, no. Are you on <laughs> some kind of other mind or body altering drug at this time? No, not really. <laughs> uh, of course. Okay. All right. There we go. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now you're back to normal. So, okay. And in Elite Dangerous, the player-run distance work... Blah, blah. And we have a very serious problem. We do? Yes, we do. Everybody go ahead and stop your audacity. We're going to take a quick break for a second, guys. I've got a technical issue we're going to sort out. Be right back. So, it looks like none of my stuff got recorded. Fortunately, recording can you speak and recording the butt. So, we have both of those things. Uh, Flunking purple-headed <laughs> mountain bicycle. Marble. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Your short, your short little lives can't get any better than to go around and up somebody else's time. Or you know, the, the thing that really pissed me off about you little heads is the fact that you you had to go around and mess with somebody else's charity functions. You know, it's not good enough that you 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 little penis breasts couldn't get it. Oh, just, you know, what? You, you okay, can't Jeff, get Jeff, 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 no? Jeff, take a Metamucil. It'll be fine. <sighs> just go sit down for five minutes. Okay. We'll... <laughs> okay, that bit will get cut. I can't, uh, yeah, Tony, it better get cut from Patreon as well. But uh... Was anybody timing him? <laughs> I'm going to let it slide. I don't care. <laughs> as, as the chair of the I debate, demand it's a recount. <laughs> I demand penalties and and a recompense for the overtime. I would do, okay. See, that sounds like the musings of like an American Republican. This is a monarchy right now, so just get oh, on and do it. Oh, right. We're under, we're under Queen's rules right Indeed. now. Indeed. Okay, fine. Oh, did you say something else and I cut you off? Um, I cocked it up, but it's fine. Go. Oh, well. All right, here we go. Cats and dogs living together and having sex. Eve. Uh, no, 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 he didn't say it. Didn't say <laughs> However, I also feel that they shouldn't jump halfway down the Google Doc when you're trying to read a line. What the heck? Go, Tony. Well, I just got, I got done talking when you start. Um, because it's, it's your you. turn. But I just got done talking. Yeah, well, try not to talk okay, so fine. much in future. Okay. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> right, like that's gonna happen. Mandolent, men, men, mendel. Uh, I'm gonna butcher your name, so sue me. Okay, I will try to make my mouse clicking silent.